Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 22 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take 30 seconds to give us a rating in iTunes. Today we have a new sponsor for the show. Yay, Postali. If you need someone to help you set goals, define your target audience, and execute your marketing plan, Postali can help. More on that later, or visit postali.com slash lawyerist right now to earn to learn more. I better spell that out. Postali is P-O-S-T-A-L-I. Also sponsoring today's podcast is William Howard Taft University, which offers an MBA program with a concentration in professional practice management. To learn more, go to taft.edu slash mba.htm. More about the program after our interview. Sam, I'm really excited that we have another new advertiser for our show. I know. It means we might be able to keep doing this. Hey, I like it. (laughs) Um, So the other day I saw a post on Lee Rosen's blog called Divorce Discourse, which is really a practice management blog, not a divorce blog, but whatever. Um, So he he had this post that he meant to be really sensational. And anytime anyone does that, I think it's going to be really stupid. Um, So the post is called Why You Should Block Your Firm Website on Your Computer. Um, And The gist of it is that he was advising another attorney on their law firm website and saw that their website was terrible on mobile. And so he said, you know, if you block your website, you'll be forced to look at it on your smartphone and you'll realize that your website is not doing a good job of conveying your image to the increasing number of people visiting it on their tablets and iPhones. Um, So, Well, that's a little blocking it on your web firm right you don't you don't actually need to block it on your what your computer right but the point is a good one yeah to be like mobile forward is a really smart idea right so i when you when you said you were going to talk about this i started pulling up the other websites that i administer to out of curiosity to see what the mobile numbers are and lawyerist which is mostly visited by lawyers who are not the most tech forward bunch is 40 percent mobile or tablets, counting tablets as mobile. 40% of the people that go there, and my my consumer law blog, which still exists, although I don't post to it very much anymore, is over half mobile. Um, and I think that's probably a better picture for what your client base might look like because that's a consumer client base. Um, yeah, most of your, well, I would I think about half of your visitors you can expect are looking at it on a phone and maybe a tablet. Yeah, and so a piece of advice that says, make sure it works and looks really good on mobile totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, if you're only designing for mobile, you're probably missing the point too, though. Yeah, although, I mean, fair point. If you think of a common scenario, it's two people are having lunch and legal problems come up and one of them says... Hey, you know who you should talk to is Lee Rosen, great divorce lawyer. You should totally talk to him about it. And what do we do right now? We pull out our phone and we Google 
Lee Rosen right there from our phone. So I, I think it's reasonable to assume that some of the most motivated or the best potential clients are actually personal referrals who are seeing your website for the first time on mobile. I think I think your website is your first chance to make a good impression. And if you're making a shitty impression because your website looks like crap on a phone, then it's just as bad as having a dilapidated office. Yep. And as we mentioned on a podcast a couple months ago, um, Google now cares a lot about this too and is deranking people who don't have mobile-friendly websites. So there are lots of reasons to care. Yeah, and you can you can check your website's mobile-friendliness non-intuitively by going to the Google PageSpeed Insights. Um, so if you just Google PageSpeed Insights or PageSpeed, you'll get there and you can check your website, you can enter the URL, and it'll tell you if your website's fast enough, but on the mobile tab, it'll also tell you how mobile-friendly your website is. And that's a really good way to see what Google thinks of what your website looks like, which is probably what your clients think of it as well. So to reiterate, his post title was a little overly sensational, but the idea of designing for the mobile future totally makes sense. If you're interested in reading that article, I'll post a link to it in today's show notes, um, and you can find out more. Fantastic. Uh, and today I'm talking, and I'm really excited to talk to Allison Shields about one of my favorite topics, which is productivity, and specifically her most recent book, which is about how to do more in less time. Hi, Allison. Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, so, Allison has written for Lawyerist on and off for many years, and uh, she is good fun to hang out with that tech show where we cause trouble if we can. And um, she most recent, she's published a lot of books, uh, but the one that we're going to talk about today is How to Do More in Less Time, The Complete Guide to Increasing Your Productivity and Improving Your Bottom Line. And Allison, I know that's available from the ABA. Is it also available at Amazon? Um, not yet, but it will be. The, all the ABA books, there's a little bit of a lag time before mm -hmm. it actually hits Amazon, so it's not quite there yet. Because it's too brand spanking new. Right. Uh, so cool. And and I have a tradition on our podcast, which is I always ask our guests to introduce themselves so that um, A, because I'm lazy, and B, because that way I won't screw up your your introduction. So uh, why don't you take a couple minutes and give us your elevator speech, who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Sure. So I am the president of Legal Ease Consulting, which is a coaching slash consulting practice that helps lawyers and law firms with things like productivity, which we're going to talk about today, but also billing, marketing, business development, um, some social media. And that practice grew out of my experience as a law firm partner and some of the frustrations that I found in the operations and business development aspects of the practice with my firm and in talking to other lawyers in, in the community about what kind of challenges they were facing. And it seemed that a lot of people were bumping up against the same things. And I decided that trying to solve those problems was something that appealed to me more than doing the insurance defense work and solving problems for insurance companies, essentially, that I was doing in my legal practice. So I started Legalese Consulting in um, 2005, and I did some practice while I was starting the business, and then I switched over to full-time 
with the consulting practice. And I have recently now, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, or maybe I'm trying to force myself to learn how to do more in less time, um, <laughs> have taken on uh, another job. So I am also now the executive director of the Suffolk Academy of Law, which is the arm of the Suffolk County Bar Association on Long Island that does all of our continuing legal education programs. You are a glutton for punishment. Or uh, or as uh, Alan Dershowitz said when he was on the show, um, you are peripatetic. <laughs> which is my favorite word that now I know what it actually means. <laughs> um, so, okay, so productivity, which is like one of my favorite subjects. I'm thrilled that we're talking about it. But uh, but as I was reading your book and preparing for the podcast, uh, this is something I was thinking about is most lawyers still bill by the hour. Why would they want to get more efficient? Well, I think even when you bill by the hour, you, you want to do things kind of the right way. Um, but also, a lot of the book and in the introduction, we talk a little bit about this, about a lot of people when they think of productivity, they think just in terms of efficiency. Um, but there's another side to productivity, which is, which is effectiveness. And that's learning how to be productive so that you're spending your resources, and one of those is time, doing the things that bring the most value to your business. So, although you may bill by the hour, there are lots of things that you do that are non-billable also. And some of those things are more important to the practice sometimes than just sitting and and billing by the hour. Um, But also, I think we owe it to our clients as lawyers to do the best job that we can for them and do it the most efficiently and effectively as we can. And if that means bringing their costs down, but I can do twice as much work in the same amount of time and build two clients for it because I'm doing twice as much work, then, you know, why wouldn't I, I want to do that? I could build my business that way. So there are lots of other reasons. Um, But I also think more and more clients are asking for lawyers to either not bill everything by the hour or they're trying to to reduce what they're paying for. And so I think that productivity and efficiency comes into play there, even if you are billing by the hour. I think you really nailed it actually with the, you know, it's the productivity is about getting the administrative stuff out of the way as much as anything. I mean, as solos and, and that small firm lawyers, you're spending a third to a half of your time on stuff that you can't actually bill for, whether you're billing by the hour or flat fees. And just getting that stuff done so you can get back to doing work is pretty valuable, I think. Yeah, and I think even even on the marketing side, what you're doing to build your business, you're not billing for that, but that's a, a high-value task for a lawyer. And sometimes aspects of that are things that you can't pass on to other people. I mean, the law is built on personal relationships. And so there, there may be pieces of marketing or different things that you could outsource to other people, but there are pieces of it that you have to do. And so if you can get more efficient on, on doing the legal work or put systems into place to push the legal work down to associates or to other people in your firm so you can focus on bringing in the business, those kinds of things come into play also. I think, um, so let, let, maybe we should start with the big picture stuff, um, which is sort of what is productivity all about. And, and I think that was a little bit of background right there. But, but when we talk about productivity, like what are, what are we talking about doing? Like what does that actually mean? What is the practice of productivity? Well, I think some of it is is just identifying what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. I mean, I have something in here, which if people have read my blog and some of the stuff I've written for lawyers, they may have seen before the idea of the don't do list, 
you know, evaluating what makes sense to to spend your resources on. And one of the biggest resources is is time. I love so, the don't do list actually. And you got to it like three chapters before you started talking about to do lists, um, because that was so good to figure out what you're not what you shouldn't be wasting your time on first. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean take your time and sit down and write down a don't do list like you would for a to do list. But it's just the concept of reevaluating what you're doing and how you're doing it in terms of the legal work that you're providing to your clients, but also in terms of the internal workings and operations of your office. Does it make sense? You know, and I'm experiencing this a lot coming into working for the Bar Association with a lot of people who have been there forever. And a lot of times I'm asking, well, why are we doing it this way? Is there a better way we could do this? And to me, the worst answer, but the answer that I get the most often is, well, because that's the way we've always done it. It's almost essential to stop every once in a while and just say, is there a better way we could be doing this? Or is there a different way we could be doing this? Because, uh, you know, it's that that really tired old metaphor of, or quote of Henry Ford's, you know, if people had told me what they wanted, they would have said to build a faster horse, not not a car. But um, but it's really important to kind of think around your problems periodically and instead of just doing them the way you've always been doing them. And I think that's what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And I think that applies both internally in terms of how you're running your, your office and, and what you're doing on a day-to-day, but also, as you're saying, sort of what I'm calling the external focus, which is how do I make things better for my clients? And some of that is asking your clients what they want, but sometimes you know better or what they need. Sometimes you know better than they do, and it just takes stopping and thinking or talking to your staff or your associates, depending on you know whether you're a solo or not, or maybe even talking to other solos, like, hey, this is how I'm doing this. Does this, does this really make sense? Or has the market changed or have circumstances changed for my client that the way I've always provided this service may not be the best way for my client. Maybe there's something that I can do and it may even be easier for me to do differently that would create a better result for the client or a better experience for the client because it's not all about the result. A lot of this is not about changing, you know, whether the client's getting a bigger award or they're getting a better deal or whatever the legal issue might be, but a lot of it is about the client's experience with your office. And it might be about getting to the same result faster, which is one of the things I surprised myself by being able to do when I changed my perspective to billing flat fees instead of by the hour. All of a sudden I was like, whoa, I didn't, I don't need to spend all that much time. I can get this thing resolved quickly. And, and not to the disadvantage of the client, oftentimes to the great advantage of the client. Oh yeah. It was, it was cheaper for them. I made more relative to the time I spent on the case. They got the thing resolved faster and better. And it was actually a, it was Pareto superior, right? Everybody won. It's well, right. except, except the other side. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. You never want them to win. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing I, I think there's a, a, maybe a pitfall is the right word for it that I feel like we always run into when we start talking about productivity, which is people start doing math in their heads, which is like, okay, if I can spend an hour less over here, then I can bill an extra hour a day. And I'm not sure that it works that way. Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of couch it that way a little bit in the book. If you save X amount of time and it's that, you know, you would normally bill that at this much an hour, assuming a lot of lawyers are still billing hourly, you know, think about how much money, but it's not really a one-to-one. And, and I think it's a mistake to think about it that literally, mm-hmm. um, 
honestly, sometimes the the objective is to free up the time so you can do nothing else. Well, I think that might actually be the that that doesn't do the math quite as well, but it it makes a lot of sense to me. And just a couple weeks ago on the podcast, Aaron and I were talking about a study that came out that said after fifty five hours in a week, you're wasting your time. You you'll essentially accomplish zero additional valuable stuff between fifty five and seventy or more hours a week. Um, so maybe it's just do as much valuable stuff with that fifty hours as you possibly can. Right, and, and then stop exactly. And and knowing if you only have those fifty hours. How should that be spent? Mm-hmm. And I struggle with this issue with with clients of mine all the time. Is trying to get them to to realize that at some point there's a diminishing return, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, no matter how productive or how efficient that you think you are, sometimes you're more effective by taking that quote unquote extra time and and doing nothing with it. It's the taking the break that makes the difference because your brain just doesn't doesn't work on all cylinders all the time. It's not possible. And too many lawyers try to force it and they're doing a detriment to themselves and to their, to their clients, but also to their families and, you know, the other people in their lives aside from themselves. We always think the more we can do and the more we can bill, the better off we are and the better it is for the client. Um, But you're not really working the same way at our, you know, as you say, 56 through 70 or 80 as you are, you know, hour one through 50. Mm -hmm. So, so let's talk about step one, which is sort of identifying the things that might want to be on your don't do list. And I'm going to take a second here and read um, from the book. You had a couple of, you cited a couple of studies, which talked about time wasters. And the first one was a monster.com study that had a top 10 list. And the top 10 is instant messaging, over-reliance on email, meandering meetings, short gaps between meetings, reacting to interruptions, ineffective multitasking, disorganized workplaces, personal communications, web surfing, and cigarettes and coffee breaks. Um, And then there was a second list of five, which you had down for knowledge workers, which was from an entrepreneur.com survey that said the top five were email, to-do list apps, social media, instant messaging, and phone calls. My favorite one on there is to-do list apps. (laughs) (laughs) it's like you're uh you're working on your to-do lists instead of doing things right i guess yeah well sometimes it's thinking about doing things or talking about doing things which is oftentimes meetings right as opposed to actually doing things i just finished reading a a report of a bar association where the a, a committee spent two and a half years and the recommendation was that it form another committee (laughs) (laughs) which is yeah total total waste of time it felt like um okay so is that are those is that sounds like a good starting point for the don't do list then right yeah absolutely and and how can you and we talk a little bit in the book like for meetings for example you get off track if you're not using an agenda or if people don't really know they know they have to show up for the meeting but they don't know what's going to happen at the meeting or the wrong players are at the meeting um you know, so that's that's just one example. So you may may need to still have meetings, but the question is, how do we have them so that they work more effectively? And we don't have twenty people in the room when we really only need five people in the room. Um, you know, my my wife has a my wife taught me a really great practice for meetings, which was before every meeting, even if it's a meeting of a type that you always have, like an intake meeting. Um, but ev- before every meeting, sit down and have an agenda. 
What are the what are the things that you need to get out of that meeting? And you just cut your meetings in half, if not more. And um, she she's great about it. She sits down and a, a client comes in and she's a lawyer too. And a client comes in and starts wanting to say things. And she says, stop, I have an agenda today and we're going to go through my agenda first. And if you have any questions at the end, we can spend as much time as we need to to get all of those questions answered. But I think I might answer them on my agenda. So let's march through that first. And um, she's very efficient and people love her for it. And uh, and I, I started adopting that. I would always sit down with an index card or a, or a legal pad and write down an agenda and it makes them go so much faster. And sometimes you don't have anything to write down and maybe you should just cancel the meeting at that point. Exactly. And I think sometimes we get so used to saying, well, we always have a meeting about this or we have always have a meeting at this time. And a meeting might not be the most efficient way to accomplish the objective. So, one piece of that is identifying the the agenda, um, but the other piece, and you kind of mentioned it, is what's the what am I expecting to get out of this meeting? And oftentimes those meetings get off track, in part because you're trying to t- accomplish too many objectives in one meeting that don't really belong together. Mm-hmm. And so I think those two pieces, uh, and if the objective is something that can be accomplished a different way then sometimes it's not worth having the meeting. Even if there is an agenda, maybe that agenda can be accomplished a different way. Or if you have, if you can't come up with an agenda and it's, then maybe you have to rethink whether you need to have a meeting at all or whether the meeting is just, let's spend a half an hour brainstorming, but you put a, you put a time limit on it so that it doesn't get into 48 other different issues. You mentioned um, and then that's, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then I, I think that helps people too because they know how long they're going to be out of their office or engaged in this meeting. One of the things that makes people very reluctant to participate or to show up to meetings or to do what they're supposed to do is, you know, the meeting starts at three. Is it going to be over at three 30? Is it going to be over at five <laughs> or is it going to be, we going to be here until seven o'clock at night? You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned, you talked a bit about impromptu meetings in your book and you, you described a situation that I remember very, very clearly from my first couple of years practicing, I was working for a solo uh, practitioner. There was one other lawyer in the office and a secretary, and he was a criminal defense lawyer. And so he was out every morning, and then he was would have lunch with someone usually for networking or whatever. And then he would come in after lunch, and we would all mob him with our questions because we didn't know if we weren't going to see him until the next day. You know, so whenever he walks into the office that was our time and we would we would just one after another just mob him in his office and you described that exact situation in the book and you talked about setting expectations which you just mentioned again uh as a as a tip for well maybe you should describe how do you what's the best way to prevent that because if you're the lawyer you can't get anything done and if you're the people mobbing the lawyer you probably aren't going to get all the answers you need because the lawyer isn't ready to answer them all at that moment. Right. And not only that, but you say, oh, he's here. I know I had stuff to talk to him about. So let me go in his office and maybe I'll remember what they are when I'm <laughs> when I'm there. Right. right. And sometimes, oh, I know I had this question, so I'll go in and ask that. But I think I had something else and you kind of stall and it just ends up being a lot of wasted time. So, you know, with something like that, what the situation that you're describing where you have a lawyer who's maybe in court every morning and then has, I mean, it sounded like he had somewhat of a of a routine that you, I mean you certainly knew in the morning it wasn't going to be available because he was going to be in court it was a bit it was not um, enough of a routine though for it to actually be one right but but from from his perspective he would know well okay I know that I 
that I can't schedule anything in the morning because I'm going to be in court and then I usually do lunch, but I know that I need to meet with my staff. So how am I going to accomplish that? Or I know that I'm going to have people who have questions. So there's a couple of different ways that you can deal with it that we talk about in the book. One of them is with people that you know that you need to have regular whether you call them meetings or not, but rather regular communication with. So maybe that's your assistant or the associate who works for you, whatever it might be. That Then you set a regular meeting time that's mm-hmm. weekly or whatever time period it needs to be, but that's so that you know and that the staff knows whatever. Every day at 4 o'clock we have a meeting. It may be over the phone or it may be in person. It may be five minutes and that may be all we need, but then I know as the staff person that if you come into the office at two o'clock, I don't have to run and say, I don't know when I'm going to get you because I know four o'clock is my time that we have reserved to deal with whatever issues we need to deal with. Um, Then you may have people who you need to interface with not quite as regularly. And so sometimes you can resolve that with having office hours. Like I know every Thursday between two and four, I sort of, my door is open. And if you have questions, that's the time to come in with me. Or you make appointments during that time, depending on how your office works and how many people might be needing to use that time. But giving people a clear when that they can talk to you eliminates that, oh, he's here, I'm going to run in. Meanwhile, you came into the office as the lawyer thinking, I have these five things that I need to get done today. None of them get done because everybody's mobbing you in your office. Right. So... uh so meetings are, I, that sounds, I mean, I love the idea of setting times for things and just establishing a routine with that. Um, what about um, what about other things that should be on the don't do list? And, and I think there's a broad category of stuff lawyers don't need to do. Like you, one of the examples in your book was a lawyer felt like she had to be the one that opened all of the mail and it sucked a huge chunk of time out of her day every day that she probably didn't need to be spending. And so eventually she realized she could offload that on on an assistant or a secretary. And it seems to me like there's a whole bunch of things that lawyers don't need to be doing and could go on our don't do list. What is, are there some other things that automatically pop into your head? Um, you know, some email, I think, you know, automatically people think that it needs to go to the lawyer as opposed to, to a staff person, or, you know, I think the mail and the and paperwork is a big piece of that. I mean, the lawyer doesn't necessarily need to see anything. If you have good people in your office who can screen things or go through and understand what what really requires a lawyer's time and experience and what doesn't. I mean, even certain phone calls with clients about certain things. And again, it depends on the size of your office oh, and sure. the other resources that you have available. But, you know, sometimes questions about billing, the lawyer always says, oh, well, if it's a billing question, it has to come to me. But it might be as simple as it looks like there's a typo in this or, you know, you might have somebody in your office who actually has more answers than the lawyer. Sometimes calendar questions, things like that. What time is my appointment? You know, when can I come into the office or I need to change my appointment? A lot of that could be done by by staff people as long as then the lawyer's informed of the change. But a lot of those questions, just because a client calls, doesn't necessarily mean that the the lawyer has to take the call. And I'm not saying that to try to slough off responsibility from the lawyer. But, I mean, I know my experience in some of the firms that I've worked in and then worked with as a consultant 
there may be staff people in the office who are dealing with certain aspects of the business on a day-to-day basis, and they really know the answer better than the lawyer. And what happens when the lawyer gets on the phone is they say, hold on, or I'll call you back. And then they go ask the staff person in the office and then call the client back. Well, and the the solos right now are going, okay, but I have to do all this stuff myself. But, But no, like, you know, Ruby receptionists or or any virtual receptionist can take that entire answering the phone thing off of your plate and save a ton of time. Um, it, you you talked about having in addition to a don't list do list, you had a go to list, which is people who can do things discrete tasks for you, which I think is a fantastic idea, um, especially if you keep it handy, so you can be like, okay, here's a thing that I can send out to somebody. It's right. really hard to let go, but once you start doing it and you only let go of tasks that are appropriate to be let go of, uh, that can just be a huge benefit. Right. And I, I think the phone is is a perfect example of having to, to answer your own phone all the time. Well, the fact of the matter is you're not going to be answering every single call that comes in anyway, because sometimes you're going to be with another client or you'll be out of the office at, a, at an appointment or a meeting with a client or in court. And so then what happens if you're not using Ruby receptionist or whatever? So then the the client is getting voicemail when all they can do is leave a message and then guess at when you might be able to get back to them. If mm-hmm. you're using a service like Ruby or one of the other services out there that does the same thing, you can give those people instructions. Oh, I'm going to be in court between 9 a.m. and 11.30. You know, if anybody calls, tell them I can call them between 11.30 and 2 or, you know. Or if you have a staff person in your office who's answering the phone and knows your calendar and they can say, he's returning all phone calls today, you know, between four and five or whatever it might be. And that goes back to almost the same thing as the staff where you give somebody a time when they know that you'll get back to them. And if you follow through on that, it makes them that much more comfortable than is what happens. You, you've probably seen it, Sam, the client leaves a message and then they call you six more times because they don't right. really know whether you got the message, whether you're really calling them back or not. Maybe you don't think it's important enough <laughs> right? <laughs> until they call you that sixth time. Yeah. Um, but if you have somebody who can answer the phone and say, you know what, he's on trial, he's in court today, he won't be out until four or five, then the client probably won't call you those other six times. Yeah, especially if you can say something to your receptionist like, I will return all phone calls by five, you know, as soon as I can after 4.30 or by five o'clock or whatever. Um, then it gives them an expectation. And as long as you don't drop the ball on that, um, you have a happy client instead of an un- uncertain client feeling like they're just stewing while you, they're waiting to hear back from you. Right. And then, so, so some things you don't have to do, you can hire somebody else to do, whether it's with a go-to list for discrete tasks or something like a receptionist. But, um, and I'm jumping to the end of your book here, but I feel like this is the place to talk about it, which is systems. Um, there are a lot of things that are repetitive that you just don't need to do. I mean, I, I just started using a, um, a scheduler, which I think I made you use to schedule this podcast, um, which it when, it, when I need to... It eliminates all that rigmarole with here are the time slots I'm available, here are the time slots I'm available, and and it just it takes my calendar into account. It gives them options. They can pick a time that works for them, and bang, I've scheduled an appointment, and it's gone from you know 17 emails back and forth to a single one. And it's I, I so far I'm really thrilled with it. It's taken a big chunk of time out of my day. So. Um, but what's yeah. the ob- there's an obstacle to systems, right? Yeah, well, there's a couple of obstacles. One of them is if you can't use the technology that you have, 
that's a huge obstacle. You can't make the systems work well if you don't even know what the technology that you're using, software, hardware, and what have you, how it works and, and how it works best. And that really, there's a whole practically second half of, of the book is sort of tips and tricks for different programs that that a lot of lawyers use. And it's focused more on PCs than, than Macs. Um, but it gives you some ideas of a lot of these things, a lot of lawyers don't even know these programs can, can do. But let's um, be clear, lawyers have a professional obligation to be to stay on top of these things. Absolutely. But most just don't. <laughs> the reality is that they don't and and they weren't trained a lot of them on a lot of these programs. It was just, you know, the first time they worked in an office, it was here's this program and they kind of muddled through. Um but I think the other piece of it is sometimes lawyers are building systems using the technology even if they know how to use the technology they have to think about what they want the system to do mm-hmm. before they figure out how the technology is going to help them do it. So it kind of goes into that old, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have a good, so say take billing, for example, if you don't have a good system or procedure set up in your office for how you're going to do your billing and, and collections. So when, when this happens, the bill goes out, it goes out uh, with this frequency this is how the bill gets built every time we you know, I mean, I, I'm still talking to lawyers who are talking about writing up their bills in, in word, you know, <laughs> and then what happens after the bill goes out? And again, this is assuming you're billing by the hour, but there's also systems that you would put into place if you were doing flat fees or, you know, retainers or, or those sorts of things. You know, how long do you wait to to make the follow-up phone call? Who makes it in the office? W- what did they say? Do you send a letter? What does the letter say? And what's the frequency of that? You know, all, all that whole system, and a lot of that can then be automated. But you have to know what you want that sequence to be and, and who's responsible for each of those pieces before you can have the technology help you do it. You have to do some big-picture thinking up front. Right. And that's... It's hard to do, and it's one of the. It's an investment in um, future productivity, and so many lawyers are just sitting around knocking down, putting out fires, uh, that it's hard to find the time to actually invest that time in the future of your firm and in that automation and stuff. That's all forward-looking stuff that isn't urgent, and we all have so many urgent things to do that we get stuck on putting out those fires. How do you stop putting out fires? I mean, like, is it a is it something that you can just do, or is it something you have to work on over time? I think it's something you have to work on over time. And I also think that you have to realize that it's like the myth of the paperless office. You're never going to have a completely paperless office with no pieces of paper ever Mm -hmm. in your office. You're never going to have a completely systemized practice where there's never an emergency and you're never putting out a fire. So you, you have to part of what I talk about in the book in terms of productivity is this idea of the chaos factor and leaving a little bit of, of room. You know, you can't schedule everything every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. You've got Productive to leave room. chaos. Yeah, you've got to leave room for the unexpected is going to happen. It's, it's Murphy's Law. And so you have to leave room for that. So part of creating these systems and trying not to be reactive all the time is recognizing that you're not going to be proactive 100% of the time either. And you have to give yourself the leeway and the sort of the permission to understand that, okay, this is a process, it's going to take time, and there's always going to be room for improvement. 
it's never going to be 100%. Maybe maybe this is a good time, talking about inefficiencies and, and leaving some of that room, uh, maybe this is a good time to switch gears and touch on something that I think from the book I got the impression that this is a soapbox for either you or your co-author, Dan Siegel, which is multitasking. Well, when you say a soapbox, you, uh, you what do you mean? You don't. You do, it's a, you. You do not believe in multitasking, right? You want people to stop worrying about it and thinking about it and start realizing that multitasking is inefficient and bad. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I and I've talked about that that for years, and we have some statistics in the book that different studies that have been done on multitasking. I mean, the. Some of those studies show that there are people who are very high-functioning multitaskers, um, but they show that those people are usually not the people who are multitasking. <laughs> right. The ones who are really good about it are the ones who don't do it. Um, you know, and I think one of the biggest problems with multitasking is the intangible piece of it. it the productivity piece, we've all heard the studies about how long it takes when you get interrupted to get back to what you were doing. Um, and that's really what multitasking is. You're not really doing two things at the same time. You're really just switching back and forth between those two different things. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes the whole process, each of those things that you were doing, take that much longer. And they're usually not done as well. Um, but to me, the piece that people really forget about is the relationship piece, the damage that you do to relationships by trying to multitask. So that might be because you're on the phone with a client and you're trying to respond to somebody else in an email at the same time and you get that awkward silence and then the client says, you know, are you there or did you hear me? And then you have to kind of pretend that you, yeah, you were listening all along, but you realize that you missed the last five things that they said. Right. Um, and the client knows that. I mean, Will they get over it? Maybe. Um, but if you do it enough times, what are they going to think? Well, I guess I'm not important enough for you to pay attention to. And why am I paying you by the hour to be on the phone with me when I have to repeat myself six times? It makes the call that much longer. Um, but also in, in terms of not doing the work as well as you could do it. You know, Maybe then, aside from pissing the client off on the phone, maybe the email goes out with a typo or God forbid you put the wrong address into, into the two line and it goes to the wrong person and then you have to backtrack and try to get it back or somebody gets information that, that they're not supposed to get. Um, so to me, that's the piece that I think everybody leaves out of the whole multitasking question. They focus on, oh, the productivity and I can get so much more done, which is not true. Um, but even if it were true, I think the other piece potentially may be even more damaging. Right. So, you, so multitasking, A, is not more productive. You actually get less done uh, in, or it takes you longer to do the tasks that you're trying to work on. Um, right. You're more likely to do them poorly. And there is the side effect of if you're trying to multitask during communicating communicating with other people you're you may damage those relationships it's trying it's you know it's it's trying to talk to somebody while they're staring at their phone um it's that same effect whether you're writing emails or talking to somebody on the phone uh it's it's a damaging thing to that relationship so multitasking bad cut it out what's the alternative well I mean, there's a bunch of different strategies that you know i think one of those interruptions sometimes is the person who comes into your office with a question and you put up the finger because you're on the phone or you're writing an email. You know, we talked a little bit before about the, the idea of office hours or making specific times to talk to people. So that's one way. 
I think resisting the urge to answer the phone every time it rings, you know, if you're in the middle of writing an email to somebody that that's what you're focusing on. So either you say, I need to take this phone call and you turn away or you turn off the screen so that you're just focused on the phone call or you decide I would rather finish the email or whatever writing or whatever thing I'm working on and call that person back at a specific time when I know that I can devote my full attention to that person on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just like you do with, if you're with a client, you wouldn't let another client interrupt you unless there was a real emergency. Um, And those are very few and and far between. And so I think you got to do the same thing even if you're just doing work for a client, you're maybe you're working on writing a brief or you're working on an opening statement or whatever it is, and it, that's where your focus is. And if somebody else calls, then you wait until that appointment time is over for you to finish that task. Um, so I'm a big proponent of thinking about each task that you're working on as sort of a discrete appointment. That you do until it's done. Right, or you do until I'm going to spend an hour on this, and at the end of that hour, I'll check my email or return phone calls or whatever it might be. So it doesn't mean you have to do every project from start to finish all the time. Um, That may not be possible, and sometimes it's better to put things down and come back to them. But to say, okay, for this hour, it's kind of a time-blocking technique. I'm going to work on this client's file you Mm -hmm. know, or do this task. And then at the end of that, I'll do whatever other tasks. And, and maybe in between each of those blocks, you want to check your email. You want to see if there, there are calls to return. But at least this way, you're not doing, trying to do two or three things at the same time. You know, I've, I've tried to be kind of draconian with myself about that. I, I have almost no notifications on my phone, or at least no interruptive ones. So all of the sounds are turned off except for the actual ringer for the phone, which is easy enough to mute with a switch. Um all the others are just, you know, the little the little uh, circle with the number in it is the only notification I, I allow for most of the stuff like Twitter and email and all that stuff because I figure those don't need to be time sensitive. And when I'm sitting down to write or work on something, work on drafting a document or I try to close everything else on my computer that is not related to that. So, no, I don't leave my email open and I haven't had a, a, a dinger flag thing pop up for email for years. And it, it helps, um, but I still find that there's that temptation to click over to it. And uh, I was talking to uh, Clive Thompson, actually, who's a writer for the New York Times Magazine, and I was asking him how he actually sits down and focus, and uh, he responded that he meditates, which I thought was fascinating, um, totally not the answer I expected. Um, but he said he found that meditation just allows him to Um, do a better job of focusing on the task that he is working on at the time. And so it's not that he's not still experiencing the urge to open up Twitter, but that he can recognize that he's experiencing the urge and discipline himself not to do it. So uh, those are, I guess that was just sort of a laundry list of tips that I've picked up, which is turn off your notifications, close down everything that you're not working on, and then I guess meditate, apparently. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting suggestion because that's a skill that meditation that that whole idea of being able to you know the thought pops up and you recognize it but then you continue your focus on you know meditation if you're meditating at the time but even if you're not meditating at the time it's that skill of being able to say okay I I know that I want to check my email but I'm going to stay focused on this and I'll, I'll check my email 
when I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I think that same thing with setting the expectations with staff and, and clients and those sorts of things that you can set expectations with yourself. Like if, if I know that I'm checking my email at four o'clock and I start something at three o'clock, I, I, it's probably easier for me to resist the urge because I know there's probably not anything that's really going to explode within the next hour. And I know I've given myself the four o'clock deadline. I have to check my email just in case. Um, so as long as I know that that's what I'm doing, it makes it easier during that hour to focus because I know at four I'll check my email or check my messages or whatever it might be. Um, so I think setting that expectation for yourself helps with that also. But the notifications thing I think is huge. Um, I also think for some people where they have the multiple monitors now, mm-hmm. as great as that is, that sometimes it makes sense to turn off one monitor because I know what a lot of lawyers are doing is they have either um, their email on one monitor and whatever they're working on the, on the other monitor, or sometimes they have their timekeeping program or their billing program open on one because they want to start and stop or what have you. And that's fine. You start the timer and then you turn it off and focus on the project that you're working on that's on the other screen. Because having that screen where you see it out of the corner of your eye um, is a distraction also. As much as those two monitors are great for a lot of things, I think that's sort of a new distraction that people are not necessarily recognizing. That's a really good point. It's I mean, Multiple monitors is great when you need to spread out your paper effectively on the screens. But yeah, a lot of people just have that second screen open as a dashboard, which really just adds up to a distraction. Mm-hmm. So I've just uh, realized, speaking of speaking of uh, realizing things that you're thinking of, uh, I've just realized that I um, started an exercise in futility here, which was to try to cover productivity with you in about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> there is absolutely no chance that we're going to get get through the entire subject of, of productivity and your book. And so I want to ask you a final question here, uh, well, but before I do... Uh, my hope is that we could maybe do part two of this podcast some point in the future, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. Love to. There's no chance that this is going to be a, uh, we're going to tackle it sufficiently in one. But, um, so let me end with this. Your book kind of distills a few other productivity systems and ideas and, and lines of thinking. Um, and, because of that, I think it's a really good book for people to pick up. Um, I've already gotten a lot out of it, and I think that our listeners would too. But let's say people want more or they want to learn more about it. What are some of the other books that you'd recommend people picked up and thought about? There's a whole bunch of them. I think it depends on you know which aspect of productivity you're really interested in. I mean, one of the ones that I really love is, is um, David Allen's Getting Things Done. Um, you know, I think that's kind of a primer Mm -hmm. and the idea that he talks about the big picture and, and small picture thinking, I think is great. Um, there's also a book we were talking about multitasking called the myth of multitasking by, uh, I think it's Dave Crenshaw is the author. And that really helped me in terms of this whole discussion of multitasking and understanding how that works and, and what to do when some of these techniques with respect to setting expectations and being able to create that clear when for people so that they're not so worried about, you know, have to get you right now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm sure there are others that I'm just blanking on at the moment. <laughs> One of the ones that I think of first when it comes to systems is a book called The E-Myth Revisited, which is not a book for lawyers. There is an E-Myth for Lawyers book, and it's not very good, so don't get it. No, the, the regular <laughs> one is better. Yeah, but it's that's kind of all about systems and how to develop them. And uh, I, I feel like the book almost insults your intelligence at points with the, these really cheesy stories that he launches into. But at the same time, I found it full of good information, really valuable. So that's another book that I'd throw in there. Yeah. I mean, I like the the checklist manifesto too, for mm-hmm. other reasons. And that's also, you know, not a book that's written for lawyers necessarily, but, um, and Dan Siegel actually wrote a book called checklist for lawyers that, that jumps off of that. It's another, that's another ABA book. Um, and Dan was my co-author on this book, but just even just pulling some, I always think if you get one little nugget from any of these books that you're ahead of the game, um, you know, and one of the things that we didn't talk about is this, this, the whole idea of clutter and distractions and there's a lot of books around, around those things as well. I think, uh, I think to a certain extent, productivity tools almost define clutter and distraction for a while. It's like you you stop being cluttered and distracted um, and you organize your desk and you get everything on a to-do list. And then we're all sort of distracted by our productivity system for a while, (laughs) Um, which I've begun to think is sort of like a necessary step in getting organized. Uh, because now I don't think about my productivity system ever anymore. It just works really well for me. It's faded into the background. It's just how I live my life is according to my system, which is pretty much getting things done. Right. Maybe light. Um, but, <laughs> but it's sort of based on that same concept. And I, I think, uh, you know, my business partner, Aaron, is the same way. Um and then when I had when I had associates working for me, I made them all read getting things done because it was essentially this is how we are going to organize our law practice. Um, so that's definitely one that would be at the top of my list. Uh, but I guess I was saying um, if you will eventually come out the other side and you will have good systems and you can stop thinking about them and obsessing about them all the time. Right. Th- and I'm guessing that that stage is where people fall when you were reading the, the list. One of the time wasters was to-do list apps. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's where that falls into because you say, okay, I got to get productive. And then you try to either use multiple apps or you're so focused on the system that you're, you end up, that becomes a time waster. But as you say, I think that's a stage that you kind of need to go through to figure out because there's no one best way for everybody. Yeah. You have to try a lot of things, figure out what works and and then you try to use as few things as possible to get the thing done. And I'm always trying to cut things, but I think we're at sort of the minimum now. Um, but yeah. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I look forward to continuing the discussion with you sometime in the future. Thanks, Sam. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks to our new sponsor, Postali. Postali is a marketing agency for attorneys. You may be asking, what is a marketing agency and why does my small law firm need one? Well, you may not. Let's see. Have you set new client acquisition goals for your firm? Have you clearly defined your specific target audience? Do you have a plan to reach that audience? Last and most importantly, who is going to execute those plans while you are out lawyering? If you feel good about your answers to those questions, well done. If those questions made your brain hurt a little, go to postali.com slash lawyerist. Postali is spelled P-O-S-T-A-L-I. 
And at postali.com slash lawyers, you can learn more about how we can help. Thanks also to William Howard Taft University. Taft has created a unique 100% online degree program specifically for new attorneys who may be facing unemployment and financial challenges and addresses important business concepts not taught in law school. The Master of Business Administration with a concentration in Professional Practice Management, MBA PPM, is believed to be the first program of its kind, designed specifically for attorneys whose objective is to operate a successful small or solo practice. Highly credentialed business and attorney faculty guide students through traditional MBA curriculum combined with material and information directly relevant to the practice of law. The program culminates with the creation and presentation of a comprehensive business plan. All coursework can be performed from the comfort of home, office, or anywhere with an internet connection. Students enrolled in the MBA PPM program may qualify for federally insured student loans in amounts sufficient to cover 100% of tuition, fees, books, and related costs, as well as an allowance for living expenses. Additionally, while enrolled in the program, students may defer payment of existing student loans, federal student loans, that is. The next semester starts August 3rd, and a 20% tuition grant is available for the first 20 qualified enrollments. To learn more, visit taft.edu, MBA PPM, or call 877-894-TAFT. That's taft.edu slash MBA PPM. Catch us next week for episode 23, when we talk with Bob Young, the chair of the ABA Law Practice Division. Subscribe to The Lawyer's Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.